0: You're listening to the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast where we will be taking a data-driven look at the 2019 general election and possibly beyond. Each episode will feature a panel of distinguished guests looking back at the past week of the campaign and asking who's up, who's down, and what should we be looking out for in the next week. We will also be delving into the data, looking at some Ipsos Mori polling and asking our experts to explain what's behind the trends we see. Hopefully, we'll have some fun along the way too. Thanks for listening. Hello everyone, my name is Kieran Pedley and today I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Balls, deputy political editor of The Spectator and columnist for The Eye, and Ryan Shorthouse, founder and CEO of Bright Blue, an independent think tank and pressure group for liberal conservatism. Welcome to you both. Hello. So we're on the inaugural Ipsos Mori elections podcast, all very excited about that. I mean, let's start at the beginning as it were. Um, Katie, I mean, what what have you noticed from the first, I guess it's week or so of the campaign?
1: Well, I think the most striking thing was Last week was week one, but it seemed to start before that because ultimately as soon as an election was called, MPs voted for it, you very quickly saw the opposition parties, some of whom had been umming and erring about whether or not they wanted an election, getting into campaign mode, particularly Labour setting the narrative each day. And you had the government uh, thinking, well, Parliament's not dissolved yet, let's focus on governing and get to the campaign once Parliament's dissolved. And I think it meant that The initial feeling was Labour was actually leading, um, where the Tories felt a bit behind. Now, this was simply in a way because they thought the campaign officially started last week, midweek. And I think since that, you've seen things improve for the Tories um, from the campaign launch onwards with Boris Johnson um, in the Midlands. But I think the initial, uh, I suppose, start for me was... uh, Several unforced errors from the Tories, um, one being on Jacob Rees-Mogg and his comments on Grenfell. You had a cabinet minister resigning on the day of the official Conservative launch in Alan Kearns. And I think it was quite a shaky start. I definitely think this week, with this row over the cost of Labour's policies, now you can debate the figures, but I think this is much more the territory the Tories want to be on, which is rows that they are making...
0: This is, this is traditional um, conservative Labour general election, um, sort of back and forth, isn't it? You know, Labour's spending plans uh, under the microscope. I mean, Ryan, what have you made of the first sort of week or so, however we want to define it? Well, really, it
2: hasn't really cut through. So all the gaffes uh, that we've seen, for example, with Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, and Alan Kearns resigning, um, often doing or saying quite serious stuff, the public haven't really noticed it Um uh, and almost it's as if the public are pricing in that there's going to be a lot of mudslinging between the parties and that's the usual thing. I mean, actually, in a way, I slightly disagree with Katie because I think the election campaign for the Tories started as soon as Boris became leader of the party, uh, and they've been itching for an election since then because uh, they felt that Boris... Um, is seen as much more uh, a better leader than Corbyn uh, and the polls back that up. Uh, And that somehow, you know, there's the kind of Heineken Tory that he is, that he seems to cut through to people, particularly on modest incomes who have long been sceptical of the Tories. He seems to have a kind of charm and charisma, makes people laugh in a way that other maybe patrician Tories like Theresa May and David Cameron don't. So I feel, you know, the kind of aggressive tactics around proroguing Parliament, some of the announcements around uh, increased funding for the NHS All of those things, really, which have been going on since Boris has become leader, I think have been gearing up for an election uh, and for positioning uh, the Tories as the get Brexit done uh, and invest in NHS party.
1: I would completely agree with that, to be honest. I just mean it in terms of specific when you get to your campaign days. Ultimately, the Tories, when Boris Johnson became leader, knew they didn't really have a working majority. I think they had a by-election in the first week where they lost it, and it has all been about working out what their campaign message was going to be and getting to that election. And I actually think the Tories were quite lucky to get to this election um, because there were points when you were building up to it that seemed touch and go and... Labour, in a way, fell into a trap by voting for it. And I think it's exactly where they want to be. There was just a bit of space as they almost worked out what I exactly wanted to say once, once they got what they'd been pushing for so
2: hard. I mean, interestingly, though, uh, I think the Tories initially wanted to be seen to be being forced into an election. So not to, you know, Brenda from Bristol, who said, not another bloody election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Boris, I think, wanted to reluctantly go into it. But I think over time it became clear that really they were really gunning for an election. Um, I don't know if that's going to have a huge impact on how the public perceived the Tories. But, um, you know, in the end, they had to just sort of admit they were really going for it.
0: So the big news this week uh, appears to be the Brexit Party's decision um, not to stand uh, against Conservatives in Conservative-held seats, Um, but at the moment, at least, to stand everywhere else. and We'll have to wait and see exactly uh, where they do stand. What do we make of this? Because um, the the theory goes that this is a very good thing for the Conservatives.
1: I think... It's good in some ways for the Conservatives as soon as Nigel Farage made that statement you saw you know, bookmakers slash the odds on the Tories winning a majority I thought that was missing some of what was happening with the pledge because ultimately Nigel Farage was saying we're going to stand down candidates in all the Tory held seats, so every seat the Tories had won in 2017 now that is helpful in some areas, I think it's particularly helpful if you look at areas uh, in Scotland where they have some seats in um, Aberdeenshire area, a tiny Tory majorities, and I think that it will help that you can't have a couple of votes going here and there, also potentially in the southwest. But ultimately, to win a majority, the Tories are trying to pick up uh, Tory target seats, which are Labour-Tory marginals, um, the red wall, some pollsters have called it, called it in the Midlands, and I think the Brexit Party still want to stand candidates there. So it's not helpful on the level of the seats they're trying to get if you think just about candidates. However, As soon as Nigel Farage stood up and said that he believed um, that there was a risk that by the Brexit party standing everywhere you could have a hung parliament and Brexit might not happen, I think he helped the Conservative argument. And he's also implicitly, in a way, not, I suppose, backed Boris Johnson's deal, but has given it some form of endorsement. And I think back to the first election launch from the Brexit party, which I sat at in Westminster, where Nigel Farage was ultimately saying this was a Remainer's Brexit deal. It feels like you've moved quite some way if you're saying you're going to... Fair way, (laughs) indeed, yeah. So I think that does help. And if you look at some of the polling out yesterday, it suggests the Brexit party is really being squeezed, so it might not even be such an issue whether standing candidates
0: What do you make of that decision from the Brexit party? Because as you say, it's quite the... um uh, about turn from Nigel Farage, right? So one minute he's saying this isn't real Brexit, next minute he's he's not standing against Conservatives, but he uh, in the Conservative-held seats, but he still stand, he still could hurt them in in, in target seats, as you suggest. I mean, do we have any idea what's motivating this change for the Brexit Party and Nigel Farage?
2: Well, I think Nigel Farage wants to be a player still in the political system, and in a way, if he can get those votes in those Tory-Labour marginals. Uh, and maybe get some MPs, he can be uh, the kind of kingmaker in in a hung parliament, uh, just as I suppose the DUP have been in the 2017-19 parliament. Um, Although Boris, of course, um, uh, sort of has been seen to abandon them in the end. But of course, they had a lot of influence. And maybe that's the approach that the Brexit party are trying to take. I mean, my general view on his announcement is that we shouldn't exaggerate the impact of it. I mean, a lot of people who vote Brexit Party won't necessarily automatically go to the Tories. Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of them uh, may do, but it's it, you know a lot of them, like with UKIP, may just stay at home. Um, that may be the alternative they do. And of course, you know, the whole Tory strategy to gain a convincing majority is, as Katie says, to win those seats in North Wales and North England, the kind of red wall seats. Uh, And they are full of voters with strong Leave identity, maybe from more traditional working class backgrounds. Um, And and they're the seats that Tories need to win to get a majority. And and, uh, Nigel Farage hasn't backed down from them. And in a way, the Brexit party, although a lot of people in Westminster see them as more on the right of the political spectrum, Uh, than the Conservative Party. For a lot of those voters, the Brexit Party may be more acceptable to vote for than the Tory party. You know, long memories of what happened uh, in the 80s with the kind of confrontational closure of uh, the pits um, uh, and a real kind of raw feeling towards the Tory party still exists. However, I think it may slightly shore up the margins that Tories have in the seats they uh, got in 2017. Uh, and there is a real threat now from the Lib Dems uh, in those uh, particularly southern seats. And so if Brexit parties stood down, you would expect, because they are part uh, really of the kind of voting block of Leave voters, for a lot of those people to transfer to the Tories. So that may help the Tories against the Lib Dem somewhat.
0: I, mean, I do wonder about the coverage of the Brexit party in this campaign now, because it strikes it's a unusual uh, set of circumstances that they're standing in, given that they're sort of selecting seats to try and essentially benefit one party, or at least that's the way it appears. Um, how, how would the broadcasters treat them, Katie, during this campaign? Because I mean, in theory, you know, Nigel Farage won't be as big a factor as he might otherwise have been.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think... What's curious about Nigel Farage's in a halfway decision or his self-partnering with the Tory party where he's decided they're having a pact, um, but you haven't had a situation where the Conservatives actually agreed to it, um, is that by standing down candidates in these these seats, I think he will no longer be included in some of the larger, you know, uh, leader debates because they're not a big enough party. Um, so that means the Brexit party will get less coverage, which is why In a direct way, they have not helped the Tories um, with the seats they need to win. But indirectly, by doing this, and and I don't think it's all intentional, they are making it easier for the Tories, I think, to make their Brexit message because they're feeding into that argument and Nigel Farage will have less of a platform as a result. So it, it gives Boris Johnson that space. And all the signs so far suggest that the Tories are successfully uniting that Leave vote broadly. And if you, one of the big worries by some of the Tory strategists was they missed the deadline. We have not left the EU, Halloween has passed. And was there going to be a big backlash? Now, speaking to Conservative MPs, one of the most pleasant surprises they've had going out on the doorstep, and there are issues they're dealing with is that no one's actually really bringing up the date now some people are but it's not this big issue every time they knock on doors and I think the big worry they had was by missing that date you would have a situation where the leave vote was more evenly split between the parties that they managed to almost avoid that in the first week or so, I think is giving them cause for encouragement.
0: This is a good example, actually, of some of the methodological considerations in polling uh, without nerding out too much. But this is a sort of polling related podcast. Um, There was lots of polling before October the 31st that talked about um, how people might vote if that deadline was met, that suggested that, as, as you said, that suggested that might be a real problem for the Conservatives. And that hasn't come to pass. Now, In many respects, voting intention polling is always hypothetical to some degree. It's often we talk about an election tomorrow, Um, but it's worth a a caution next time we see these hypothetical polls, whether it's about a particular event or a particular leader in charge or whatever it might be, it's not always uh, quite as clear-cut. Speaking of data, I want to move on to some Ipsos-Mori data and get uh, both of your uh, sort of opinions on this. Um, So our Ipsos-Mori Issues Index, which is a monthly uh, survey that we do, face-to-face in people's homes where we ask people what are the issue big issues facing the country and we get people to tell us so we don't prompt them with a list they just tell us in their own words and uh, we get the data back and crunch the numbers the top three that consistently have come out this year have been brexit the nhs uh, and crime and, and, and policing and so on uh, with our most recent data showing that uh, uh, the environment and sort of climate change uh, in number four but it's, it's it, when you get to that level it's quite close so um Brexit, the NHS, and crime. This is often called the Brexit election. I think Sky actually call it that. I mean, is this election just about Brexit, Ryan? Uh,
2: no, uh, but I think it will be the prime consideration because it is, in essence, the kind of final showdown to determine the fate of Brexit. Uh, and I think you know the public, as the Tories have kind of plugged into this idea of just get Brexit done, get it resolved. It's been stalemate for too long, and. Um, it's, you know, we need to move on to other issues. The Tories are sort of, you know, I think got the right message there. Uh, but ironically, really, it's only one party that's offering a real end to Brexit, and that's the Liberal Democrats. By stopping it altogether, you know, even if the deal goes through, Boris's deal goes through, Brexit will still be discussed and debated, and there'll be big issues in terms of negotiation with the EU and other third countries through free trade agreements. Um, so, yes. Um, and really what's interesting is the amount of volatility in terms of voter volatility in recent elections, number of people switching parties. But my understanding is that actually a lot of that volatility is within the leave remain blocks. So people switching from Labour to Lib Dem, people switching from uh, Tories, Brexit Party, or or whatever direction. So a lot of the volatility is inside those two identity blocks. Uh, And really, that shows you just how important Brexit as an issue has become uh, to the way that people identify and the way that people vote. Um, uh, And it's for that reason that I, I think, you know, because the country is so narrowly and strongly divided, um you know people like john curtis will say this that you know he he thinks we may end up where we started with a hung parliament because of that kind of now uh, of that narrowness in terms of the division but of course that depends on how voters will react in terms of tactical voting and whether parties will stand down and whether um you know the lib dems will mirror what um brexit the brexit party has done you know they um What they did this week with Canterbury, where the candidates stood down, Tim Walker, um, but the Lib Dems have said, actually, we will put in a candidate, shows maybe they're not going to be doing that. Um, But yeah, I think Brexit is all defining, um, but, you know, there'll be issues on the margins. But I think people will go to the
1: polling booths with Brexit
2: in mind in terms of where they think we should be going.
1: I mean, we saw in 2017 how you can aim to have a Brexit election and actually have domestic issues dominate the agenda. I think what is different this time around and what MPs have found on the doorstep is last time around people weren't actually sure the election was necessary. Um, Theresa May called a snap election, but there was this sense that perhaps she was just doing it because it was necessary for her to get a very large majority if she thought what was best in terms of the Tories. But I don't think there was a sense in terms of the country that you necessarily needed it for Brexit. I think that meant that the topics did move quite a lot. I think that one thing you're picking up is there is a sense in the general public, whatever you want to happen with Brexit, that this is a time to have your say on it. Now, I still think that domestic issues are clearly going to have a big role to play. You see Labour's favourite attack line is trying to combine Brexit with the NHS and constantly talking about this US trade deal the Tories would negotiate and how that could lead to the NHS privatisation or lower standards in food. So you can see them trying to fuse domestic with Brexit. I think that if you look at the three... Areas you mentioned Brexit, NHS, and crime, they're also the three areas the Tories are the most focused in on. They're also looking at education, where they were stung in 2017, but um, particularly the NHS, where there was this view in the past, and um, Linton Crosby was quite heavily involved with the Tory election campaigns. He doesn't have an official role this time, um, that ultimately the NHS was always a difficult issue for the Tories. So you were better in not going near it too much because it would just lead to you being wounded. Now, Dominic Cummings is not got an official role in this campaign but as Ryan pointed out the Tories have been cam- in campaign mode since they entered 10 Downing Street so they've been working out what their election priorities would be. Now the Dominic Cummings approach uh, Boris Johnson's advisor is that you actually cannot the NHS is such a big issue you have to get on top of it which is why you're seeing a different change in tack in the Tories on this one where they're putting the NHS front and centre there's been some polls suggesting that it's working well for them and then I think that third issue crime um, Lots of people like to depict this Boris Johnson government and the Conservatives right now is much more right-wing than any previous government. Now, I think that actually, if you look at lots of their policies, it's hard to really say, where they have moved more to the right. But on crime, I think is the one area where they would openly admit and they would say they're moving to the right. And you can see that in putting... Priti Patel as Home Secretary, who is right-wing by conservative standards. And I think there are lots of, um, they would call themselves liberal conservatives, who, if you ask them where they're unhappy uh, with the shift in the party, you said, well, what is it specifically? They would point to her appointment. But there is a sense that when Priti Patel talks on crime, she is more in step with the country, um, than actually most in Westminster because people have this appetite and finally I think it's helpful to the Tories given that the stats on crime haven't been great the whole time they've been in government to be talking really tough and trying to sound like the law, the party of law and order and almost creating some distance between um, what they're saying now and perhaps what's happened while they've been in power.
0: Let's talk a bit about um, how nervous the government should be so when we look at some of the traditional indicators, it doesn't look great uh, for a, a government seeking re election after many years in office. So, um, our data has uh, 75%. Uh, Saying that they're dissatisfied with the job that the government's doing running the country. Uh, A majority, 56%, say they think the economy will get worse in the next year. So there's a general sense of negativity uh, amongst British public opinion. But at the same time, when we look at the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, his net satisfaction rating, so that's when you take away the number that are dissatisfied, which is 75%, from the number that are satisfied, which is 15%, his net rating is minus 60, which is the worst we've ever seen uh, in our Ipsos Mori political monitor. We've been tracking uh, for a leader of the opposition, and we've been tracking this uh, way back to the late 70s when Margaret Thatcher was an opposition leader. So I suppose on the one hand, negative indicators for the government uh, as, as the incumbent, but the opposition uh, leader in particular, not popular either. So I guess my question is, with that sort of context, I mean, how nervous do you think the Conservatives should be at this election?
2: Well, I, I think uh, the latter point that you made around Corbyn's net dissatisfaction is really what's motivated the Tories from day one of Boris becoming leader to have the election. And from speaking to different pollsters, they always say, you know, the best predictor of what the election will be will, be people's satisfaction with uh, a particular leader, Boris or Corbyn. And as long as Boris is well ahead uh, of Corbyn, um, then you would expect uh, a Tory majority um, if that's the case. Um, I, I mean, it's interesting about the strategy uh, the Tories are pursuing because uh, it's seen to be quite hard line on Brexit and on uh, crime and law and, law and order. Um, But I think they are slightly nervous about, you know, um, voters maybe in more southern areas, in uh, more urban areas, perhaps people in their 20s and 30s who disproportionately went Labour in 2017. Uh, And there are issues uh, like the environment, for example. And today Boris has given a speech talking about having a kind of Uh, clean energy revolution, I I think the environment will feature quite prominently just to kind of soften the Tory image slightly and appeal to those types of voters. Uh, And there has been some um, polling done and the Tories are ahead of Labour on the environment. Um, That's a poll I saw recently. Um, And of course, Boris is surrounded not only in terms of his girlfriend, but a lot of his political allies are big green Tories. So for example, the Goldsmiths, Um, And so I think, you know, how we get to net zero, uh, a lot more policies around animal rights and animal welfare, I think will feature quite prominently in the Tory manifesto to give something to those perhaps kind of more middle class, urban, liberal minded voters that,
0: you know, they're conscious of uh, not being able to secure and losing to the Liberal Democrats. So, Katie, I mean... Boris Johnson has a big lead in personal poll ratings over Jeremy Corbyn at the moment, but we're about to go into a series of debates of various kinds—some on one some not. I mean, are they risky for the prime minister?
1: Yeah, I do think they're risky. I think anything when you're the front runner and it, and you're ultimately conceding ground, you're sharing a stage with someone who is not the front runner is a is a risky exercise. Ultimately, there is a sense uh, in the Tory party that Jeremy Corbyn was popular, you know, or surprised them in 2017 when he rose in popularity, but it's fallen a lot since and voters are disillusioned with him. So I think they are less worried about a second bout of Corvin mania, if you want to call it that. I mean, ultimately, I think they think in Boris Johnson, they have a, a more fluent and confident public speaker than they had in Theresa May, so they're less nervous on that level. Um, I still don't think you should write off Jeremy Corbyn. I think anyone who saw what happened in 2017 um, (laughs) would be foolish to do that, especially because they don't need to get as many seats as the Tories. The Tories need to have an outright majority. Labour could potentially form a minority government propped by the SNP. They have a lower bar. Um, In terms of the debates, I think the biggest risk for the Tories isn't really anything Boris Johnson does per se. I think it is ultimately they've agreed to -to head-to-head debates with Jeremy Corbyn. And that means that the smaller parties are not in on them. Now, I can see why they think that is a good idea. Ultimately, on this question... To frame the choice between the two men. On this question, who do you think is the best Prime Minister Boris Johnson already leads? You can affirm this idea. It will potentially bring back some Liberal Conservative voters who voted Remain in the EU referendum. Who don't really want Boris Johnson's Brexit plan, but if you frame this choice, they might think, actually, I I won't vote Lib Dem because I'm going to get Jeremy Corbyn. Um, But there is another risk, which is how how badly do people want to stay in the EU if this is a leave-remain axis people now vote on? um, I think by cutting Joe Swenson out of the picture, the whole Tory strategy is to unite the leave vote and then have the Remain vote divide, be divided. And that is how you get to a Tory majority. You, you need both things to happen. I think by cutting Joe Swinson out and just having Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn does have a good opportunity, should he take it, and there's reason to think he might not, but to really pitch himself as the only viable route to remaining in the EU. It's only through him and being in Downing Street you'll get a second referendum. So I think that depending on how he performs, and there are two head-to-head debates, there is a chance that you start to see that Liberal Democrat vote fold a bit into Labour. That would worry the Tories because you can have a clear Boris Johnson lead in terms of the Tory vote. But as soon as Labour start to get a bit closer and the Liberal Democrats get squeezed, I think that's when they will start to get quite
2: worried. I mean, just on that, uh, and I agree strongly, and I think the similarity with the 2017 election is, and I think you're starting to see it already in the polls, is both support for the Labour and Conservative Party starting to go up as people realise that it's one or the other, really, in terms of, you know, if you really want to remain in the EU, then perhaps the only route is, is to vote Labour. I think where the difference is, and I slightly disagree with Katie, is, you know, the problem with Theresa was she was very straightjacketed, you know, any question from a journalist was laced with arsenic, you know, she was so kind of scared of it. Whereas with Boris, actually, it's almost the complete opposite, which he can be quite gaff prone. Um, and, you know, he there was. A, away with it he, he seems to get away with it. But, you know, last week, for example, uh, he was talking in Northern Ireland, talking about what a wonderful deal it would be because they'd have unfettered access to both the UK market, uh, Great Britain, and also the single market in the EU, to which everyone said, well, why did we not have that for the rest of Great Britain and Scotland in particular? Um, so I think you know, whereas Theresa was very on top of the detail uh, and very meticulous in her planning, I don't think Boris is on top of the detail and can not put in the kind of hard yards to prepare for stuff. And I think that may become more
0: exposed and people might become frustrated with that. So final question to you both then to sort of wrap things up. I mean, looking ahead then to the next, let's say week, or the next few days, next week. I mean, what are we looking out for in this campaign?
1: I think looking for a switch of pace in a way it feels that things have been pretty steady in the past week in terms of the polls but also just in terms of the the scraps the parties are having you know a cost row between Tories and Labour it it doesn't feel that it's anything that different or anything so radical that it's going to shift the dial too much from where it is currently. I think that Ultimately, you speak to Conservatives. They say, we will not repeat the mistakes of 2017. So what about new mistakes? This this is the thing. You can plan to not have a policy on social care, which terrifies people that they're going to lose their home. Um, you can you can plan not to do that, but there will be other things that you do which you, you can't plan around. So I think the manifestos are clearly going to be a point where things could start to move again. Um, I think the Tories are currently probably getting quite a boring manifesto, um, just so they don't have a repeat of 2017. I think the television debates, so I think those are the set piece moments that could start to impact things. But as of anything, and you look at the floods at the moment, there are factors beyond either party or either the two main parties controls that can start to shift things. So that's why it's very unpredictable.
2: Yeah, I'm particularly interested in the manifestos, particularly the Tory manifesto. Uh, I agree with Katie. I think that, you know, the last manifesto felt very kind of detailed and philosophical, but was kind of more suited to a seminar rather than doorstep. So I suspect that this Tory manifesto will be slimmed down, will have a lot more straightforward retail policies. Um, I've heard rumours that it might be delayed. I mean, there's a kind of feeling that the 2017 manifesto really hit the Tories. And that was a turning point in the campaign. So leaving it till later in the campaign may suit them. Uh, And, you know, you look at the contrast with the Labour Party, who seem to be announcing bucket loads of policies every day, really to get on the front foot, talk a lot more about domestic policy and uh, the impact of austerity on public services. But I think the contrast will be quite acute. I think it'll be like a long shopping list from Labour, whereas Tories will be a lot more contained. One final thing, though, to think is just the logic of the Tory party's Brexit and electoral approach will mean that the types of voters that it wants to uh, bring on board and be part of uh, the centre-right movement will be people, uh, you know, a lot further north in England, a lot more modest incomes. So the logic of the electoral approach of the Tories is that their, so, their kind of economic and social policy agenda will be more progressive. It will have to move to more to, to the left more. So in fiscal policy, you're seeing, you know, the kind of fiscal discipline approach kind of being abandoned. But, you know, I think, you know, on things like childcare, tax policy, uh, education policy, health policy, there'll be a lot more focus on how you support people uh, on modest incomes. Uh, and I think, Ultimately, that's a good thing, uh, both politically for the Tory party, but morally as
0: well. Certainly lots to keep an eye out for. And there'll be plenty of Ipsos Mori data to chew over in the coming weeks and future episodes of this podcast. And um, for now, Ryan Shorthouse and Katie Balls, thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast with me, Kieran Pedley. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe on iTunes or one of the other podcast apps that you might use, or tell a friend about us on social media or elsewhere, and keep an eye out for more Ipsos Mori elections podcasts in the coming days and weeks.